Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday, the 12th of December. We're edging our way towards Christmas. Thank you for taking the time in this busy season to download this podcast and making us one of Hong Kong's most listened to business and finance shows. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Hong Kong's Patriots-only poll drew a record low of 27.5% in district council elections, despite officials extending voting by one and a half hours to midnight because of an electronic system failure. That compared with a turnout of 71% in the 2019 district council elections. The previous record low turnout was 30.3% in 1988. A draft text of the COP28 summit agreement has prompted widespread backlash from countries vulnerable to climate change, as previous language that promised the phase-out of fossil fuels is dropped. A draft of a potential climate deal at the COP28 summit on Monday suggested a range of options that countries could take to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but omitted the phase-out of fossil fuels that many nations have demanded. EU Minister Eamon Ryan, who is also Ireland's Environment Minister, said the bloc will walk away from these climate talks if the draft deal doesn't change. Policymakers from half of the group of 10 jurisdictions will meet this week to set interest rates for countries that represent 60% of the world economy. The Fed, which will deliver its monetary policy decision on Wednesday, followed by the European Central Bank and Bank of England on Thursday, are all under pressure to cut rates next year. The Swiss National Bank, Norge Bank and Brazil's Central Bank also meet this week, with Norway's Central Bank being the only one that could still conceivably raise interest rates, while Brazil may cut. The rest are confronting financial market pressure to explain why they seem unhurried about pivoting to monetary easing in the face of easing inflation and slowing economies. China's vehicle sales surged 27.4% year-on-year in November to 2.97 million units, marking the fourth consecutive month of growth after rising 13.8% in October. Sales of energy vehicles soared by 30%. For the first 11 months of the year, new vehicle sales grew by 10.8% compared to the 3.3% rise recorded during the same period in 2022. Meanwhile, energy vehicle sales jumped by almost 37% over the January to November period period compared with a year ago. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Oldcroft, Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. You'll also find my daily newsletter there with more business and finance news from across Asia. On Wall Street Monday, US stocks closed higher ahead of key inflation data and the Fed meeting. The S&P 500 gained 0.4% to close at 4,622. The Dow rose for the third straight day, adding 157 points. That's 0.4% to 36,405. The Nasdaq Composite added 0.2%, ending the day at 14,432. 
All three indices ended at their highest levels in more than a year and a half, with the S&P 500 and Nasdaq coming off their sixth straight weekly gain. Investors continue to rotate out of mega-cap tech stocks and into small caps and more modestly-sized companies. All of the magnificent seven stocks move lower, with the group as a whole tumbling by the most since October the 26th. Treasury Treasury yields fell, reversing earlier gains after a $37 billion auction of 10-year notes received decent demand for investors. The 10-year yield was hovering unchanged around 4.23%, down from 4.29% earlier in the session. The dollar strengthened against Asian currencies on Monday, driven by expectations for US inflation data this week and figures over the weekend showing worsening deflation in China. The renminbi weakened 0.2% to 7.17.5 renminbi against the dollar. That's a three-month low following Saturday's worse-than-expected inflation data. The yen tumbled 0.9% to 146.18 per dollar. Spot gold tumbled 1.1%, dropping below $2,000 to end the day at a three-week low of $1,981 an ounce. Gold briefly traded over $2,100 last week. That set an all-time high before retreating. The Brent crude oil contract for February gained a third of a percent to settle at $76.03 a barrel. And bitcoins saw large, long liquidations overnight of over $400 million as U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren introduced legislation to address her concerns surrounding the alleged misuse of digital currencies in illicit activities. Bitcoin plunged, holding just above support at $40,000 before ending the day 7% lower at just above $41,000. Hong Kong stocks pushed lower on Monday, but mainland Chinese bourses rebounded. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index shed 133 points, or 1%, to close at a near 14-month low of 16,210. At the low of the day, the city's benchmark index fell over 2%, plunging below the 16,000 level to 15,972 before rebounding. The tech index dropped 1.1%, and on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose 0.7% to 2,991 after being down 1.3% at one stage during the day. Futures markets pointing to a rebound for the Hang Seng of about 67 points at the open. That's around 0.4%. The index expected to start just below 16,270 this morning. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our Tuesday morning guests. We have with us this Tuesday and every Tuesday, Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultants. Morning to you, Stuart. Good morning, Peter. And in Cambodia this morning, we find Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. And over in Florida in the USA, our US economics correspondent, Barry Woods, scattered all over the world we are today. Morning, morning, Barry. Good morning. Good morning to you, Peter. I think I know where I'd rather be out out of the four of us, (laughs) and it's not where I am. Let's start uh, with uh, Hong Kong. The Hong Kong Patriots only poll drew a a record low of 27.5% in district council elections on Sunday, despite officials extending voting by one and a half hours to midnight, citing electronic system failure. That compared with a turnout of 71% in the 2019 district council elections, as many voters this time around spurned what was seen as an undemocratic poll. The previous record low turnout was 30.3% in 1988. 
decades, local officials made exhaustive efforts to persuade citizens to vote under an electoral regime that in effect barred opposition candidates from standing and the pro-Beijing Democratic Alliance for the Betterment and Progress of Hong Kong, the DAB, came out on top as the biggest victor in the district council elections. The party fielded a candidate in each of the 44 geographical constituencies, only losing in three of them and coming away with almost 42% of the vote. Stuart, did you feel enthused um, by this particular election? Well, I, I need to let you know, first of all, that I did actually vote. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great choice in who I could vote for. Um, one independent candidate and then three other candidates who are pro-government, more pro-government than they are, and I'm the most pro-government candidate. So it wasn't exactly a great choice. But having said that, um, the democratic process did occur, if you call it democratic, when any form of opposition candidate would not be allowed to stand. Um, yes, the uh, what can I say? It was an election. It was done in accordance with the Hong Kong government regulations. They got what they wanted. 27% of the, popula- of, of the electorate uh, voted 1.2 million people out of 4.3 million who could have voted. Um, I would be mightily unimpressed if I were reviewing it. But surprisingly, some of the party leaders were effusive about it. Mm-hmm. Some of them were saying, oh, it's great. We're very pleased. We've got lots of new um, voters and things like that. It's it's it, it could not be further from the truth, but that's the way it is at the moment. You have to be saying positive things if you're in in any form of political environment. And um, so, yes, the DAB won. Uh, they're not exactly democratic, but that's the way it is. Um, Federation Trade Unions came second. Independents came third, and and the. Um, what was called the New People's Party, which is a political party, mm. um, came fourth with a grand total of five seats out of the 88 on offer. So I would be mightily unimpressed if I were part of the, the New People's Party, but their leader says she was very pleased with the substantially en- enlarged constituencies and what that resulted in. I guess the reason why a majority of people stayed away is because they felt it just didn't make a difference because the proportion of directly elected seats, it used to be about 90%. It's 20% now in this this election. I presume that's the main reason that kept particularly young people away. They just thought it was a waste of time. Interestingly, the, the number of young people that registered to vote was lower this time than the last time there was an election, um, which is counterintuitive. Um, the number of older people who voted was higher than um, any other age group. So, you know, this is this is probably the, the way of, of the elections for the moment. Uh, yes. Sure, you have to take into account that they, uh, they were bussing the old people in. I'm not sure that yeah. they had a... Th- I'm not sure it was quite a free vote when you get bussed in. It was a, an opportunity to go shopping and not have to pay for it. Yeah, um, but you know the interesting thing is as well, Andrew, people were being bussed in. Some people were going into the um, election booths, but they didn't have to put their tick on, the, on their piece of paper. 
Um, and uh, although there have been no indications of what the spoilt ballot numbers are, um, prior to the election, the government was very worried about spoilt ballot papers, either more than one tick or, 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 or no tick. And, and they were sort of threatening people for, for doing that. Um, I think I think the whole thing is though. I mean, as you say, they were trying to get as many people out as an endorsement, and and the the, the reality is that uh, those that believe in a democratic process, the only option they had was not to turn up. Exactly, exactly, and and that's that ultimately is probably the the best way of looking at the turnout rate. Um, we there is absolutely nothing good that can be said about it, other than you know, a million people did did actually get out and vote. But a million think out it, of four is, is still a small number. And I think the other thing to bear in mind, I mean, the, the government was clearly worried about this and the clear worry about upset. I mean, what the, the, they had something like an extra 12,000 policemen on duty. Now, we, we keep getting told to tell good stories. I mean, Hong Kong is incredibly safe. Um, yes. And why, why would you need to bring out that many policemen in an incredibly safe city? unless you're just trying to whip up fear amongst the population. Yeah, mm. and and the constituency where I've voted, there must have been 30 people hanging around the sports hall um, trying to show us the way around, where to go. You know, we've done it all before, so it's nothing new. Um, many of them probably weren't even born when I first voted here. Um, but, you know, part of it is that you know, they, they, they feel as though they have to, to, to whip up the enthusiasm, as you say, uh, where there isn't any. Hmm. Um, I, for the, for, there was a little, little glitch when I went to vote. Um, I got delayed by about 15 minutes, but in the end, I managed to get my vote done. Um, and in the whole of the time I was in the sports hall, I doubt I saw even 10 other voters coming in. Um, well, I think, I mean, that's an interesting thing as well, because uh, there was a report recently about LegCo, and because they're all one party effectively, or one, one opinion, they don't even manage to get a quorum because they know they don't have to turn up because there's not going to be an opposition. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, realistically, even these candidates that are standing can't be bothered with the process. And I think that's, exactly. that's truly the undermining of the whole thing. Andrew, um, one of the and things that has sort of been the focus of attention because of this election has been how overseas people and international investors perceive Hong Kong uh, as a result of this and also Hong Kong standing as an international financial centre. Do you think it does impact um, people's uh, perceptions of Hong Kong from overseas, particularly potential investors? Well, I think so. I mean, I think the fact that we're having an election without an opposition, you know, most people would say that sounded rather like a dictatorship. Um, and, you know, that's the sort of thing that people take into account. I mean, there's another report overnight about how the government says, you know, we're being undermined by people talking about burner phones. But the reality is people are worried about data and China is very opaque about what the data law really is and where they can go for servers and which information can they take down. International business people, there's two things. One, they don't want to lose their information, you know, unbeknownst to themselves. And secondly, they can go to other countries and know that they can do business in a much better environment. Hong Kong always used to be known as a great place and a safe place to do business. You had English law, you knew where you stood. Today, you don't. And, and there are other venues that people can go to for business that provide them with that certainty. 
The person you were referring to there on the on the burner phones, Bernard Chan, the former convener of LegCo, is now the chairman of our Hong Kong Foundation. He says he wants to tackle unprecedented smearing and vilification, vilification from the West. He said that some friends had told him about uh, having to bring burner phones from Hong Kong. He said uh, that a big American firm told him that the national security law could result in people checking his data center. He said this kind of misperception is really killing Hong Kong, and he conceded it's going to be a challenge to dispel Western concerns. So is this something that is killing Hong Kong? Yes, I think it is. I think, I mean, you know, the fact is that the fact that even, you know, American firms, because if they're operating in China effectively, need to run two IT systems, one for China, one for the rest of the world, shows you that, you know, China is not integrating itself. And they're doing that because China is not clear about what its data law means. And Mm -hmm. data today and IP are extremely valuable assets. And uh, companies just don't want to operate there. I think a couple of the chambers of commerce in China have been, you know, on at Beijing to make that clarification and make it very clear. But it's not in the Chinese way of doing that. So it's unlikely to happen. Barry, when you look at this from overseas, does it change people's perception of, of Hong Kong, do you think, particularly investors and particularly people who look at Hong Kong as a, an international financial centre um, when they see this election? Does anything change? Well, I would think so. Um, I don't think the American public or the American business community, aside from those already involved in Hong Kong, really have focused on on this election. There has been a fair amount of news stories written about this election. And um, people conclude, I suppose, rightly, that uh, Hong Kong has lost most of its um, democratic uh, foundation. It is interesting when you look at Hong Kong as a financial center, as it's always been, that uh, you have been buffeted by change for well over 150 years, some of it coming rapidly. I was looking through some data that uh, Hong Kong was always uh, regarded as the freest economy in the world, and that uh, private property and English law and, in fact, uh, minimal regulation and freedom to move money about uh, number one in the world. I mean, that was that was year after year. Mm. I, that's gone. But the transition is underway. And it's very difficult to know where and once we're in the middle of that transition, which I, I think my colleagues are saying, we're in the middle of a transition. We don't really know what that means. Certainly, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange is not dead. Uh, many of the dire predictions, if you went back to uh, Uh, 2019 have not come to pass. Obviously, there has been a a loss of of talent, uh, but Hong Kong is still a very international city. Hong Kong still has a very vibrant stock exchange, what is still number three in the world. So I think it's a mixed bag. But um, any process story is very difficult to gauge when you're in the midst of it. Mm. Well, Hong Kong Stock Exchange may not be dead, but Kei Hian, who's Chief Investment Officer for Wealth Management at UOB, said the lack of liquidity here shows institutional interest in Hong Kong and China is declining to a new low. Global investors have divested a big chunk of their Hong Kong holdings in the last two years. And she said many now consider China irrelevant from a global portfolio view. Is, Is that a view that's sort of widely held, do you think, over in the United States? 
Yes, I think it is widely held. And uh, this is, uh, again, one of the few things that Democrats and Republicans agree on. Uh, this is a very hard line. And, uh, you know, to come to the data law, which was mentioned by Andrew, uh, that has been a red flag for international companies for quite some time. The idea that China does not allow the export of any data out of China, uh, certainly that has been a factor that uh, has affected decisions from Amazon and Google and Facebook, etc. And uh, that probably is part of the reason that TikTok is under so much pressure here in the States. And again, there's uh, very few defenders of TikTok, although I noticed that in some of the hearings in, on CNBC in which TikTok is the subject and everyone's hammering them and saying this is really uh, run by the, uh, the Communist Party in Beijing, uh, they were a sponsor. <laughs> mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you, it, it's hard to figure things out at times. Stuart and, and Andrew, do, do you worry about what we're seeing with the, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the lack of liquidity at the moment, the, the declines, the talk now even that India's stock exchanges are going to overtake Hong Kong soon in, uh, in terms of market cap, the way things are going? Is, is that a concern? No. <laughs> um, I, think I, think, I think it is. <laughs> so I'll come after you. Good. <laughs> good. Uh, yeah, um, I don't think it's a concern. I mean, no, the the India being larger than Hong Kong exchange. Well, bear in mind, you know, we, we could have been saying the same thing about London. London used to be the second largest in the world for many years and then got overtaken by others. It hasn't made a great deal of difference, although there is less liquidity in London. That's true. But this is just a function of changing um, attitudes. And yeah, for as long as the Chinese economy is going downhill and companies are doing less well, then it's inevitable that um, uh, Hong Kong and China will be less attractive to global investors and therefore there'll be less money. There is no shortage, however, of money available for the right stocks in Hong Kong. And if the right stocks come along, they'll be over they'll be overwhelmed with money that's very that's very clear um it's just that it's not at the moment necessarily the right time now andrew definitely wants to disagree with me i think <laughs> well i think i'm not totally disagreeing with you but i think that the reality is that you know you look at the day turnover in Hong Kong a couple of years ago was probably averaging around 150 billion and now we are what 90s 80s some days um, I think what we're what we're finding and I, I agree with Stuart for good companies yes for companies where you're you're certain that there is always going to be interest but Hong Kong and China as, as Stuart said they have fallen off some people's radar screens we're almost getting and, and I think the indexes are going to show this that we will have Asia x China just as we had Asia x Japan 20 years ago um, it will become specialist uh, and, and and a lot of that is just because of the 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 fact that the Chinese government have, have uh, made it more difficult for investors to operate Okay. Well, yeah. let's move on. We've got more things to talk about. Policymakers from half of the group of 10 jurisdictions are going to meet this week to set interest rates for countries that represent 60% of the world economy. The Fed uh, starts its meeting today, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England on Thursday. We've also got the Swiss National Bank, the Norwegian Central Bank, Brazil's Central Bank, all meeting this morning. And they're coming under pressure at the moment from the markets who are expecting them to try and pivot away from... Uh, 
uh, who are worried about them uh, remaining restrictive for too long and want them to pivot away uh, from these uh, these high interest rates. Barry, I suppose um, this is going to be a key week, isn't it, for uh, for the central banks and, and for the Fed also. I mean, they're, they're, they're coming under pressure to cut rates, but the data isn't helping them, is there? We had the jobs data on Friday, which once again um, just defied expectations, much, much stronger than people were expecting. I think central banks are quite happy with the way things are evolving, um, whether it's in Europe, uh, North America, or Japan. Uh, this, this is really going quite well, certainly for the Federal Reserve. I mean, that data uh, of a very vibrant economy, uh, you know, the third quarter annual rate of growth in the GDP, 5%, that's an extraordinary number. Mm-hmm. So yes, of course, there is a lag. And yes, the US economy is slowing. Uh, the European economy, on the other hand, has already slowed, and maybe um, I see these projections say it will slow further. That's because there's a war right on their doorstep, and they've had to deal with gyrations in the in the price of natural gas. But uh, the European economy is not dead; it's not really suffering. It's it's steady as she goes, and I think the ECB is pretty happy as well. Bank of England, I think, uh, sure, they'd like a little more growth, but they'd also like the inflation rate to come down. Here in the States, as you mentioned about the employment report, exceedingly good. If you look at inflation, the trend line is down. That's good. So what is it? I mean, the unemployment rate of 3.7%, that's hardly a recession. So I think the Fed has done a magnificent job and that uh, the watchword has to be higher for longer. Stuart, would you agree? Would you agree I with that? Entirely agree. Um, I don't think there's a, there's no demand at the moment for an increase in interest rates in, in almost every country at the moment, uh, and I think it's uh, but the, also it's the resistance to a reduction in rates that will be the the key. Um, and I think the Fed, the Bank of England, and the ECB, and and so on, they're they're all strong enough and willing enough not to uh, reduce interest rates at this time. Um, they don't see the need to do so. Inflation still remains a, a, a key factor, especially in the UK, which is, where it has come down a lot, but it needs to come down a bit more. Um, and remember that we're, we're looking at economies where employment is pretty full, um, much higher levels of employment in most of these economies than probably has been expected. Uh, the, 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 that is in itself going to be good for two things. One, of course, less need to pay out benefits, but two, um, a higher level of tax due next year. So you know, that's that's good for the economies in some respects. Andrew, where do where does um where do we need to go so that we're no longer restrictive? The Fed has said, uh, Jerome Powell has said, you know, interest rates are now in restrictive territory. But I suppose the question is, as inflation gets closer uh, to neutral, as unemployment moves down to a more neutral sort of level, where could interest rates go um, to to also be neutral? Well, I think that's going to be a very difficult you know answer to that one because you know we've had rates unrealistically low for so long that looking at the long-term trend two percent is probably not the right number Mm -hmm. um we also i think one of the reasons that Powell is being very reticent about changing his policy is because he knows a lot of this housing data takes a long time to actually feed through and at the same time, he's looking at you know strikes for wages which have now ended which again is helping the unemployment issue 
but it does mean that there are higher costs going into the system uh, with those higher wages coming through, uh, and that's going to have an effect. So he can't afford to act too early. Um, but I doubt whether 2% is really the, the long-term you know, rate. I think as we get closer to that, it'll become more apparent. Uh, but it's and I, and I think, the, as, as he says himself, he's going to remain data dependent. They will watch that data and they will continue to, to monitor and massage where they need that rate to be uh, for, for the new economy that we come out the other side on. But it's not clear at this stage. And I think it'd be, be somewhat foolish to say it was going to be certainly 2%. I think Powell is right in saying that's the kind of target rate. But as we get closer, and that last mile of bringing inflation down is always the hardest, he's aware of that. I think the flip side of it is a lot of the people that are calling for the, the you know the rate cuts, they just have never been in this situation before. You know, they've been only experienced rates going in one direction and they have no idea how to react. Whereas, unfortunately, I think all of us have been through you know, rates being much higher for much longer and, and are quite aware that the economy is not going to sort of suddenly crash to a, a grinding halt because of interest rates at this height. In fact, quite often you find this is the sort of time when you get the better companies really showing themselves because they operate really profitable, good businesses. Uh, and that's what investors should be looking for. Mm. Well, we've got this huge disparity, though, between the market pricing and what the Fed is saying. We, we're going to get the dot plots um, at this meeting. Now, the medium so far for 2024 for the dot plot is 5.125%. That's what the Fed members are saying. The lowest value out of all of the Fed members is 4.375%. The market is saying that uh, the Fed funds rate is going to be around 4% by the end of the year. So it means uh, that every single member of the FOMC has to be wrong about the likely future um, of, of policy rate decisions uh, if the market is going to be right. So someone is horribly wrong here, isn't there? Or someone is fibbing somewhere. Well, I think, I think you always used to be don't fight the Fed. At the end of the day, those guys are the ones that will make the decision. So I would probably bet on them being closer to the truth than the market. The market wants to talk it down for its own benefit. Uh, the Fed officials haven't got that pressure. Sorry, yeah, I think that Sorry. it's really true that um, uh, the, the market wants lower rates, and and there's nothing that in the data thus far that would suggest that that's necessary. What they are suggesting clearly is that those eleven rate increases in the course of 2022 and 23 until July are indeed going to slow the economy. And therefore, there'll be pressure on the Fed sometime, what, March, mid-year 24, to cut rates. We'll see. So far, all of those experts, Peter, have been dead wrong about growth in the U.S. economy for well over a year. So uh, it's very hard to predict what is going to happen, certainly more than, than six to 12 months out. What about the ECB? Um, they're in a more difficult position, aren't they? Because the economy in Europe is much weaker um, than in the US. Inflation now, it was about 10%. It came in at 2.4% in November. Does the ECB have room to start thinking about cutting rates? No, I don't think so. I think it will wait to see what happens at the Fed. Um, it's got its own um, it's got its own problems, of course, with the Russia-Ukraine war. And, um, and that 
hasn't yet played out. There are clearly some signs of what's going on there, but it's. Um, I, I don't think the, the ECB is in a position yet to cut rates. Maybe in the first, by, by, by the end of the first quarter next year, it might take a look. Andrew, what, think, do, what do you think? I was just going to say, I mean, I agree with uh, with Stuart there. I mean, I think the other problem the UCB has is the fact that it's it's not one economy that it's dealing with. You know, you're looking at slowing in Germany, you're looking at problems in Italy, you know, Spain. All these are very different economies that it's trying to, to manage into a single basket. And that's always been its bigger problem as compared with, with at least the US is, is one country at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. I think that... Uh, when I was living in, in Europe uh, in, in the mid-90s, I mean, I sort of concluded interest rates didn't help for very much, that uh, it wasn't the gauge of economic activity that it is in the States. And I think I still think that. Uh, the Germans want to control the ECB. They don't really, but they're the most influential member. And they are still haunted by inflation of the 1920s. I mean, they've heard it from their grandparents and it's all in the data. So I, I don't think that the ECB is going to cut rates. Uh, I think they're going to wait to see if there's some, some pickup in the European economy. And I suspect there will be. And Stuart, what about the Bank of England? Well, again, same situation as ECB to some extent. Um, the Bank of England is um, doesn't operate in exactly the same way, but it uh, it will follow the trend of both the Fed and ECB. Uh, and at the moment, inflation is still too high in the UK. Um, and there are a lot of other political interests going on there, but I don't think an interest rate cut is one of those that's going to occur. Uh, and just in exactly the same way as is applicable in the US, um, the Bank of England might want to hold off on any interest rates until next year, which will, in theory, be an election year. Mm -hmm. Andrew? Five and a quarter percent, the uh, the Bank of England's rates, 15-year high at the moment. Any leeway at all for, for them to cut? No, I don't think so. And I, th and I think they're being very fair. You know, again, they're, they're being data dependent. They, you know, again, they've had strikes in the UK, which has been a big issue. Uh, wages have, you know, certainly in the public sector, have been so low for so long that there's a huge catch up there that's going to have to happen. Um, and, and I think, as Stuart was saying, you know, they've got a lot of more structural issues to look at within the within the UK that need to be resolved first. So I, I think they have very little scope, and I think they have very little. I don't see them having that much pressure to cut rates um, from from a lot of the um, you know the, the wider representatives of this community there. Okay, now COP twenty eight is due to come to an end tomorrow. There's been a bit of a shock today because um, a draft text of the uh, the COP twenty eight summit agreement has removed language that promised the phase out of fossil fuels, and that was going to be a key element of uh, of the whole discussions. Um, the document, which will have to be agreed on by almost two hundred countries in Dubai, um, has rather laid bare deep international divisions over whether oil, gas, and coal should have a place in a climate friendly future. The actions 
set out in the document include reducing consumption and production of fossil fuels in a just, orderly and equitable manner so as to achieve net zero by before or around 2050 in keeping with the science. The EU is threatening to pull out uh, of the discussions unless there's substantial changes uh, to this. I mean, Barry, this is um, the, the COP28 is on the verge of ending in a, in a, in a rather uh, bad failure, isn't it, if, if, uh, if they can't agree on uh, fossil fuels and phasing them out? It's very hard when you've got 150 countries to agree on anything. I would surmise that um, the statement on fossil fuels is just fine. I mean, good heavens, the world is not going to get rid of automobiles and it's not going to get rid of uh, coal-fired power plants instantly. There is movement. There's no doubt about it. There's movement in almost every country. Nobody is against fighting climate change. So I think it's maybe a kerfuffle that doesn't mean all that much. Mm. Stuart, what, what would you, you what would, Yeah, what would you expect of a COP28 being held right in the middle of the <laughs> biggest oil producing nations of the world? You wouldn't get anything other than a resistance to to this. And and anybody who would have expected otherwise, I think, is being deluded. You know, COP28 held in, in in the Middle East is bound to come up with some form of um, uh, supportive language or actions towards the fossil fuels market. And that's, and that's exactly what's happened. Um, the reality is that I think there's been a, a, a level of expectation by many other parties around the world um, that, that could never have been delivered. Well, the, um, the, the, the reports are suggesting that it's Saudi Arabia who have put pressure on the UAE leadership at uh, the COP28 summits to try and dial down uh, the language on, uh, on fossil fuels. But Andrew, what, what are your thoughts on, on this? No, I think, I mean, the reality is that we can't, you know, stop the use of fossil fuels overnight. We just don't have the infrastructure to replace them. So, you know, phasing out is a lovely idea, but we, we don't have the capacity to phase it out as quickly as we might like. But the fact is that people are moving that way. Um, and it's going to be, a, you know, again, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. Um, it would be nicer to move things faster, but that's the reality is we haven't got the alternative energies in place, the infrastructure to, to supply them, to store them, to be able to switch off fossil fuels overnight. So it's, it's you know, whilst the activists want to, you know, want to Nevada today, the reality is that we don't have the infrastructure to have it for a few years. And I think we have to be practical about that. Well, what do you say, though, to the South Pacific island nations who don't have the time uh, to wait for the rest of the world to agree on phasing out of fossil fuels? As John Silk, the head of the Marshall Islands delegation, said, we're not going to go silently to our watery graves. Well, no, and, and, and I'm sure and I'm sure it's a good idea that they continue to, 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 to lobby for faster action. I'm sure there could be faster action. Um, I think I mentioned before with the, um, you know, the metals group with, where I'm doing some work, um, you know, they are sponsored by some of these Pacific islands uh, and they will get royalties from the, the deep sea collection of these um, nodules for nickel and copper and magnesium. You know, there are ways that these other islands who are members of the, uh, uh, the ISA can make... Uh, 
returns and, and use that money for their own protection. But the reality is that you know this is an ongoing process uh, and it's not one that's going to be solved by just by you know nice words in a statement. It's actually going to happen by everybody taking a practical approach to it. And, and that's even down to us, you know, whether we turn off our electricity supply at night for the, the, the porch light type of thing. Absolutely. The world is not a, a fair place. Uh, life is not fair. Uh, I'm sorry for the Marshall Islands. Uh, but even if you had a strong commitment on fossil fuels, scientists would tell you it would be years, if not decades, before you'd see any real change in sea level. I mean, this is a process. Um, so I'm sorry for them, but that's the way it is. But it is agreed. And I think it is agreed, isn't it, that fossil fuel burning is the biggest contributor to climate change. It, it accounts for about three quarters of the emissions. If the countries can't agree on this key issue, what hope is there of countries being able to meet their climate change obligations that they themselves have promised they're going to they're try and meet? Well, I don't think they're saying they're not going to meet their obligations. I mean, the, the, but the, the reality is they won't, though, if they don't do something about this, regardless of whether they say it or not. They're not going to, are they? Well, as you say, regardless of whether they say, or regardless of what they say, I mean, China has said, you know, we're going to cut out, you know, uh, coal-fired power stations, and now they're still making more of them, but on the basis that the modern ones are more efficient than the old ones. You know, that is a move in the right direction. It's not perfect. But, you know, that's the way these things are going to have to happen, you know, unfortunately. We, we, we are too reliant on fossil fuels to be able to turn them off overnight. Okay. Well, some... I mean, actually, if you, we did turn them off overnight, we wouldn't hear the protesters because there'd be no electricity for them to get their message out. <laughs> Okay, let's finally get your thoughts on the uh, on the markets. Uh, a lot going on in the markets. U.S. Um, U.S. stocks are actually getting quite close again to a record high. The Dow uh, is only a couple of percent away from a, from a record high. I think the S and P five hundred about five percent uh, away from a new um, record high. The market seems to be broadening out um, a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, away from these magnificent seven stocks that have driven it uh, for for most of the year. Which I suppose, Barry, that that's quite a good sign. I think it's a great sign, and I think it's likely to uh, to reach these uh, record highs at some point. Whether that's going to be remainder of the month of December is perhaps unlikely. But good heavens, after a terrible 2022, 23 has been a good year. Um, I think the world has absorbed the war in Ukraine and Russia. It has absorbed so far the disaster in uh, the Middle East. So I wouldn't have expected uh, such a benign effect as we have seen. So, yes, um, party on. <laughs> party on everywhere except Hong Kong and China, which, uh, <laughs> which are down again, again. Uh, yeah, I, th I think it's true. Barry's right. I mean, the Magnificent Seven didn't do very well overnight, but that doesn't mean to say they won't go up a bit more later on in the month. And when they move, the whole market moves. But the fact this time was that uh, it was the rest of the market that moved, I think is a very positive sign for the US at the moment. Um, things are looking reasonably good. The economy in the UK, in the US is doing okay. Economies actually around the rest of the world, are, uh, except for China, are doing okay. Um, and that's, that's a, got to be seen more positively. Um, within Asia, we're seeing Australia and Japan going on higher. Japan's had a, 
had a really good year and surprised most people. Um, so, yeah, I think we're, things are looking reasonably okay for, for much of the, the world. And as we've talked actually earlier, uh, <clears throat> India is, is, has been going gangbusters this year um, to the point where it can possibly fairly soon overtake the size of the Hong Kong market. Yeah. Andrew, I suppose, though, next year, companies are going to have to prove themselves, aren't they? Because uh, this year has been driven mainly by multiple um, expansion, even amongst those, uh, particularly amongst those uh, magnificent seven. They've got to start showing uh, that they can really generate some real earnings from all this AI potential. Well, there is that, but I think AI will actually take a lot longer than months, to be honest with you, uh, and that has kept a lot of money on shore, uh, and that will continue to be a, a very crowded trade. And you know, should the Fed start cutting rates next year, then you may well see you know U.S. dollar position changes, and that will have an impact. And I think we've also got at this time of year, you know, a lot of people looking for their tax losses and their positioning for next year. Uh, um, you know, they've got to make all those sort of moves. And I, I agree with Stuart. I mean, I think, you know, Hong Kong, China is out of favour, just as Japan is coming into favour. The Japanese currency and uh, fiscal policy is changing. That makes that very attractive. Um, so it's unfortunate for Hong Kong and China that there are many other good opportunities. Um, and the fact that, as I said before, you know, the fact that the governments aren't making it easy for international investors um, when there are so many other good opportunities just mean that people will vote with their feet, uh, rather like the local elections here where people didn't vote. <laughs> Hang Seng's exactly. down 18% this year. Do you think, um, you know, next year could be the chance of a big value play um, here? <laughs> well, it's nice to think of a bounce back. Um, yeah, of course it could. I think most analysts at the moment are saying Hong Kong and China are cheap by comparison to the rest of the world. But that's cheap by comparison to what are expensive markets. So it doesn't necessarily mean that um, that Hong Kong is that cheap. Uh, it is reasonably priced, but uh, we need the companies in the Hong Kong market to, to also start uh, picking up and doing better. And that's not been occurring because, as we've said many, many times, 70% of the Hang Seng Index is... Uh, 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 China, China companies, and so it doesn't matter what happens in Hong Kong. It's what happens in China that will be of benefit to those companies and and ultimately to the Hang Seng Index. Andrew, do you think uh, twenty twenty four could be the the time for uh, a comeback from Hong Kong and Chinese stocks on the basis that you know from from a valuation perspective they're looking very attractive. For years, we haven't had to worry about policy change in China, but Xi has shown us in the last three years that he can change his mind very quickly, uh, and that is a new risk. And I think, you know, as one of my clients said to me, you know, we'll go back into China when we've forgotten how much money we lost last time, uh, and that's going to be the overwhelming, you know, critique for a lot of people. You know, they changed their minds on education, and that took billions out of the market overnight. Um, People remember those sort of changes, uh, and that worries them about the policy going forward. Okay, well, thank you all very much for your thoughts this morning. You heard there Andrew Sullivan, the founder of Asian Market Sense, Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Oldcroft, and then over in Florida uh, this morning, Barry Wood, our US economics correspondent and writer and broadcaster. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk.
Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Enzio von File, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. With a view from Japan, it's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Have a great day. Money Talk 